Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. So we come to Pentecost, a day when we find that the disciples were off sitting in their hiding place, fearful still, even all this time later, for they were remembering that their leader had been killed by the authorities, who had all of them at some point or another admitted that they didn't really have a reason to put him to death, except that they were afraid, except that they saw him as a threat. And yes, all of the disciples up there in that upper room, they knew resurrection. They knew that Jesus had come back. But then he had gone again. He had ascended, and they were alone in that same place where he had been put to death in the first place. They were alone as yet another pilgrimage feast began. They were alone as the city around them began to look very much as it had during the Passover, very much as it had at the crucifixion. And so they hid, all of those disciples. They hid themselves away in their fear and in their trauma. But as much as they felt alone, it turned out that the ascension was not the end of the divine presence, any more than the incarnation had been the beginning of it. And wind and fire drove them back out of hiding, back into the world that God loves, to break down the barriers that had disconnected the people from one another, and to show forth the God who unites where humans divide. The disciples emerged into a crowd a visible manifestation of God in this world, an inbreaking of God's kingdom, leveling the playing field and reshaping human understandings of who was in and who was out, who was neighbor and who was stranger, who belonged to God and who did not. The disciples emerged driven and surrounded and held by the Holy Spirit, clearly doing the impossible speaking so that all of the nations who had gathered for the festival could understand. And they were met by amazement, but they were also met by pure, stubborn, and fearful disdain. They are filled with new wine. I've preached on this passage for years now. But this year, it is this one line, this one snide little comment. This is the line that stuck with me because the dismissiveness of it felt very, very familiar as those who were present to this moment that we see as miraculous, that we see as the presence of God and the Holy Spirit. In this comment, they yet tried to delegitimize the words that the disciples had come into the world to speak. They tried to delegitimize what the ability to speak those words at all even meant. And this year I stopped on that line, wondering who it was who had said it, 
wondering why they had been so reluctant to see the wind and the fire and the understanding between peoples as being the presence of God. For who would ever want to silence the Holy Spirit? Who would be threatened by this moment, such that they would try to change the meaning and take away its power? Who would be invested in making the crowds believe that the disciples were drunk rather than empowered? It's an uncomfortable question, if you stop and really think about it. And it's a particularly uncomfortable question this week, as we are called to ponder the difference between protest and riot and revolution. As we recognize that the ways in which we describe what has been happening depends greatly on what we stand to gain and what we stand to lose. As the winds swirl and the flames rise, the language we use to describe what we're seeing our willingness to legitimize or dismiss the actions of communities around this nation says more about us than it does about those who are protesting. And I think that's why I got stuck on this phrase this year. Because this one throwaway line, this one little sentence in the middle of the story, this one moment that is really just there to set up Peter's speech, is being repeated over and over and over again in various ways right now, and it forces me to wonder where we actually are in this story. It forces me to wonder where we situate ourselves in a predominantly white church, in a predominantly white state, on a day when we remember the birth of all that we hold dear, on a day that we are called to see where the church is still being born, among us. My best friend lives in Minneapolis. And I talked with her the other night and asked her how she was doing. She said, I am bearing witness to the apocalypse. Now, my friend is a theologian and a scholar. She's someone I actually quote fairly regularly in these sermons. And so her word choice is careful. And it is far more than true. It is far more true than if she were merely talking about the end of time. For apocalypse does not mean destruction. It means revelation. And indeed, the events of this week are clearing away all of the filters, all of the blinders we have turned on this world to reveal deeper truths of injustice and oppression in a nation built on looted land by people whose bodies were looted property. The deeper truths of pain long dismissed and protest delegitimized for the sake of maintaining power, for the sake of devouring resources, for the sake of not having to deal with the brokenness of the body of Christ or the brokenness of God's creation. This moment is truly apocalyptic, revealing the movement of the spirit even now, even here, this first movement of creation that is still swirling and moving accompanying us and arguing with us and guiding us towards God's new creation. What does that look like to us now? What are we expecting to see? And how do our expectations set up the filters and the blinders that keep us from the revelations of God's spirit? 
We talked a couple weeks ago about how we've been taught in so many ways throughout our lives of faith to see the Spirit as a comforter, as reassurance, such that when we are uncomfortable, we perceive it as the absence of God. But it is that same Spirit that made the disciples so terribly uncomfortable that long-ago day in Jerusalem, as it pushed them out of hiding, pushed them into confrontation, pushed them to demonstrate publicly that the greatest power of the empire, the power of death, was no match at all for the power of God, who is life and breath and creation. Because the comfort of the Spirit is not in being okay with how things are right now but in knowing that we will not be abandoned as we grow and change and seek God's kingdom, in which all of the barriers that humans create give way to unity in the body of Christ. The comfort of the Spirit will guide us through the discomfort of having our eyes opened to all of the things that we have not wanted to see. The comfort of the Spirit will guide us through the discomfort of looking closely at all the ways we have ascribed meaning to difference, the ways that we have allowed racism and sexism and ableism to be called common sense, to become truths that we cling to so that we don't have to look at ourselves all that closely, so that we don't have to change. The comfort of the Spirit is in delighting in the ways that individual differences create collective strength and adaptability and grace as we live into the divine truth that defies human common sense that we are indeed one body, all of creation together, animated by one Holy Spirit, one divine breath that gives life to our whole being. And so no matter what it is that common sense might tell us, no matter what it is that our individual human experiences might tell us, it matters that parts of our body cannot breathe. It matters that authorities are using illegal restraints for extended periods of time in Minneapolis and in Staten Island, and that they are only doing this on certain bodies. It matters that those same bodies are viewed as inherently threatening and needing to be kept under forced control. It matters that those same bodies are the ones disproportionately affected by our nation's air pollution and suffering from higher than average rates of asthma. It matters that those same bodies, those members of our body, have a far greater chance of dying of COVID-19, not only because this nation's unequal access to health care puts them at a disadvantage, but because these communities make up a disproportionate number of the low-wage workers who we have now deemed essential and who therefore lack access to the privilege of sheltering at home. It matters that bodies of color cannot breathe. And it matters because crucifixion is death by asphyxiation, which means that Jesus could not breathe. It matters because their bodies are members of our one body, united by the creative spirit of our God. And if they cannot breathe, then none of creation can participate in the health and wholeness that God intends for us all. And when the spirit moves in rushing wind and swirling flame. It is for us all to stop and hear what God is speaking, not to dismiss or delegitimize that which makes us uncomfortable, 
not to pretend that we are not all interconnected and interdependent. For the story of Pentecost is not just something that happened thousands of years ago in Jerusalem when a liberative movement was started after the killing of an unarmed brown man by colonizing authorities. It is happening now. It is happening right before our eyes. And that ancient story should give us pause as we consider how we will respond, whether we will participate in the possibilities for newness and repentance and healing, or whether we will dismiss the movement of our time as drunkenness, as craziness, as outside of our expectations for how God works, as uncomfortable, and therefore as illegitimate. For even the story of Pentecost, as it comes down to us in Acts, is just a modernization of a story far more ancient. Peter himself noted it when he quoted the prophet Joel, For Joel told the story of a time when the land had been devoured by an invading nation, an occupying force, plundered of all that had been life-giving not once but four times over until nothing was left, until the people could only lament the destruction, for even the animals and the land and the water itself were suffering. And God came to the people in darkness and fire. The presence of God arrived, indescribable, confusing, and even frightening. And it was in the face of this presence, this manifestation of divine power hidden from human sight, which terrifies and infuses the people, that the promise of dreams and visions, prophecy and spirit is given, and is given as a mark of God's presence to those who have been oppressed, to those who have been left with nothing but the ability to weep, for the plight of creation. This is the story that Peter tells on that first Pentecost that we read about in Acts. This is the story that Peter tells to those who accuse him of drunkenness, the story of a spirit that comes with darkness and fire to stand on the side of those who have been oppressed, to call all who have ears to hear into the wholeness of God's creating spirit. This is the story that Peter tells to those who would dismiss and delegitimize God's work in our world. The story of a divine presence that reveals the world as it is and calls us to repentance and renewal, calls us to turn our backs on the deathly power of empire for the sake of the life-giving power of the spirit that opens a way forward we cannot truly see or comprehend but promises us that we will not be alone, even in the newness of the kingdom. This is the story that Peter tells, the story of God's presence that brings us comfort so that we have the courage to make ourselves uncomfortable for the sake of justice, so that we have the courage to look closely when the truths of our humanity are revealed, when the instincts to be dismissive are before us when the revelation of God's work in this world deviates from our expectations and offends our common sense. For this is not just the story that Peter tells. This is the story of our faith throughout history. This is the story of God's interactions with our human lives spoken through prophets and apostles, calling us to choose justice over power, uncomfortable vision over willful blindness calling us to break down the barriers that keep us from loving our neighbor as ourselves, calling us to break down the power structures that divide what God has united, 
that devour and asphyxiate that which God has made. This is the story of the Spirit's creative movement, calling us continually to newness, to wholeness, to unity with the whole of this diverse creation, especially when it is suffering, especially when it cannot breathe. And this story needs to not just be the story that Peter told two millennia ago. It needs to be the story that informs our life today. The story to which we continually respond. The story that we get to rewrite. The story in which we are called to participate in our generation. For the people are afraid. The disciples of the living Christ are afraid. Those whose land and whose livelihood has been devoured and stripped of all of their resources. Those who have been invaded and oppressed and looted for generations. The people who do not look like us and who are yet members of our body are afraid. Those who feel unheard, those who feel alone. Those who have tried to cry out only to be silenced, to have their voices dismissed and their words delegitimized as too angry, too uncomfortable, too crazy, too dangerous. The ones who know well what it is to be accused of being filled with new wine. The people are afraid. And they have the right to be. But where the people are afraid... And where God's creation is in pain, we know that the Holy Spirit is present in darkness and in fire, in clear present vision and in dreamlike fluid possibility, breaking down the barriers we have long known and expected and even reinforced. The Holy Spirit is present, calling us to hear what is spoken plainly. The day of our God is upon us. The Spirit is moving among us. The Church is being born today. And we are invited to be a part of it. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Amen.